Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eliza Weeks, one of the hosts of the channel. I'm joined by my co-host, Carrie Tippin. Today, we'll be talking to Christina Ward about her newest book, American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello, published in 2019 by Process Media. Christina Ward is an author and editor at Pharrell House. She is a contributor to Serious Eats, Edible Milwaukee, The Wall Street Journal, The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Remedy Quarterly, and Renunciable Spoon Magazine. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Christina. Hello. Thanks for having me. I have always been curious about advertising cookbooks. Uh, my mom is a brand name cook. Uh, all of her best recipes come from the back of packages. Um, and in my academic cookbook studies, there's a lot of attention to community cookbooks, like those church fundraiser cookbooks, uh, individual manuscripts, and then like the single author commercial published cookbooks like by chefs. But not a lot on this kind of specific corporately authored book that you look at in this book. So your book really highlights the weird and wonderful, uh, but also the really important reasons why these things exist in the first place. So start us off by telling us a little bit about your academic and professional backgrounds. How did you get interested in cookbooks, especially what you call advertising cookbooks? Um, I grew up in the 70s, early 80s, um, and my mother was a, a cook like yours. Um, everything was instant box, canned, and I lost that generational, and I think many women of you know a certain age have, where there's a, a disconnect between um, the oral tradition of learning how to cook and then that, that packaged aged. And so I grew up not knowing how to cook until going back to visit my paternal grandmother who on her farm, very rural farm. And she cooked like an old farm wife. And to me, that was really fascinating and so different from how I was growing up. And so that sparked the interest in cooking and cookbooks and just food. And how does it come together? How does it come from a place? How do people change it? So to me, it was a lifelong fascination. Um, Academically, uh, I'm one of those people that um, it, it gets, the term is syncretic. Um, so I actually studied history um, and not so much food history, uh, but came to food history with that understanding how history just changes everything and influences everything and especially food. And I'm always delighted to find so much really interesting and fascinating research going on in um, the uh, official academic channels of, kind of culinary history and food studies. So, Christina, what is an advertising cookbook and what makes it different from other kinds of cookbooks that we might encounter? So for me, I use the definition of an advertising cookbook that uh, one was either published by or the creation was funded by a corporate brand. 
And so its sole goal was to either advertise its product um, using that product in the cookbook, or in some of the later ones, they were an, um, an advertising vehicle for um, highlighting the brand itself. And you see that with um, some of the, my first example that pops in my mind is Gettleman Brewery, which was you know a, a small brewery, regional Midwestern brewery. And they used to publish cookbooks um, specifically geared towards men that featured hunting and fishing game recipes. So again, you didn't cook with the beer per se, but it was definitely geared towards beer drinkers. Well, so you've already talked a little bit about the generational gaps of knowledge um, that these cookbooks try to fill. The other thing that you write really beautifully in the introduction um, is, quote, the tension between loving one's work in the home while finding a way to make it easier, uh, soon discovered by marketers as the exact space modern products and cookbooks can occupy. Uh, So what else is it that advertising cookbooks offer their readers that other kinds of recipe texts don't? What I find really interesting is they offer um, an aspirational sense that has now been adopted by most cookbooks. So prior to the advertising cookbooks coming about Um, starting really in the the late 20s, early 30s, you saw cooking as just a very practical thing that needed to be done to feed feed your people. Um, But after the advertisers got a hold of them, um, they became really aspirational in so that you can make a beautiful meal easily if you just use this one product that we featured in this recipe. Um, And it really came to define who we thought of ourselves as Americans. And that's what I find really interesting about these advertising cookbooks in that way is they really try to um, both um, flatter the cooks as well as um, kind of push them in with, I I guess the the modern term is kind of negging by a kind of a negative reinforcement um, that if they would just use the products, if they would just do it this way, you'd be um, better loved, better respected. <laughs> and so it's a really canny art um, in the, the advertising lingo and the psychology behind them. The introduction tells a history of cookbooks that really paints a direct line between Puritan austerity and gender roles. Amelia Simmons, World Fairs, Home Economist, and Jello recipes. Essentially, that American cooks at each stage needed, or maybe wanted, experts to tell them how to eat and cook. Can you break this down for our listeners, sort of how we got there? Um, Sure. It it starts really in England um, with those cookbooks and in in Europe with the kind of household manner would have a cookbook um, of favored meals. And so people would start writing them down. If you had to train a new cook, you know, you wanted what the favorites of the master of the house were. Um, And so that began the tradition of writing down favorite recipes, people trading recipes. And of course, when they come, um, the colonists come to uh, from, you know, Europe to the United States, they bring those recipe books with them. And so it became a way to both document and then also keep a, a, a history, if you will, for themselves of the food they ate and how to prepare it again. Um, and it becomes a method of teaching. And it's very um, ungendered in the sense of women were first in charge of um, the kitchens in the home. And of course, then keeping those recipes. And of course, as, as happens, some people are just better at it than others. Some people are in better cooks. 
And so they became sought after as for their, their skills and, of course, then writing down the recipes that they were using. And so that's kind of how um, that we got from just writing down the process or remembering it to actually creating a book of them. I've always interested, I'm interested in that Amelia Simmons connection, because I, I think you write really compellingly. That's really one of those first moments of a generational gap, right? There are, she's an orphan and there's no parents to tell her what to do. Uh, how do we get from th- that Amelia Simmons person to the home economist? That's an interesting part of the story too. Um, I think so as well. Um, Amelia Simmons has the great honor of being the person who really created the first, authored the first American cookbook, who took the uh, traditional English recipes as well as was aware of what was happening in the southern colonies with the French and Spanish influence, as well as the changes to those European recipes that came about from um, having you know ingredients that were new to the colonists, especially I'm thinking about corn and how cornmeal becomes a a go-to for wheat flour. Um, And so she really um, created a whole genre unto herself and that idea of being that expert. And so uh, that expertise is, I think, almost larger in the human um, psychology. I mean, we want to learn from someone we believe knows how to do it. Um, we don't want to learn from someone who doesn't know what they're doing. And so having someone with that uh, veil of expertise, as she did, and in her writing style, was very unique for a time. Because one of my favorite passages in uh, Amelia Simmons' uh, book is, is she starts in an intro. And again, the language is, is archaic. But essentially what she's saying is, don't come at me <laughs> with your criticism. I know what I'm talking about. And that to me is like a real great American um, style that influences future cookbooks. Great. And there's also a lot of that introduction of, as you said, new ingredients. So the World's Fairs, uh, you know, uh, introduce Americans to things they've never seen before. And now they need an expert to tell them how to use these unfamiliar ingredients. And so where it came from a practicum of how do you deal with corn? How do you deal with squash that were unfamiliar to European colonists um, to then introducing actual new foods to Americans? And so where a banana, um, for example, isn't native at all, and it took marketing, not necessity, but marketing, someone interested in trying to make money um, to introduce people to the uh, new food and then of course, when you bring people a brand new food, you have to teach them how to eat it, which is one of the genesis of advertising cookbooks uh, when you get into bananas specifically, because United Fruit pretty much set the template as to how do you introduce a brand new fruit or, or any food stuff, and then how do you teach people how to consume it? Great. So this also part of the story is the story of advertising itself. Um, And you talk about how it changed dramatically with Edward Bernays and the practices of psychological coercion. Uh, So kind of explain who this person is and how his ideas changed advertising in ways that would lead to the advertising cookbook. Uh, Bernays is one of those fascinating characters. I don't know if anybody's watching the the new English uh, filmmaker, Adam Curtis's, you know, um, series, but he, he talks about Bernays a lot because people are now realizing the influence of 
the psychology of how we're manipulated. And so Bernays was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud and studied under Freud um, some of the Freud's theories of analysis and psychological motivations. Uh, but he took those back to the United States um, and used those first in propaganda, an outright pop- propaganda. He worked for the United States government in, post-World War I in communicating the messaging from the Versailles Treaty and how it was going to benefit Americans. He then went into business for himself in advertising, and he is credited with using psychological manipulation techniques, um, using um, aspirational types of um, methods. One of his first most successful campaigns was the introduction of smoking to women. Prior to the 1920s, uh, smoking was considered a filthy habit, and only the most slatternly of women would smoke cigarettes. Uh, but Bernays had the idea of connecting smoking with suffragettes. So women's emancipation, women's rights were uh, connected to smoking cigarettes. You have, if you want freedom, you have the freedom to smoke. Therefore, have a torch of liberty was the phrase he came up with. And so very successfully, mind you, too, he, he converted a lot of women to, to begin smoking. Um, and so using those basic techniques of showing people and not just making an advertisement, not just taking an image of prior to Bernays, those images of like just the food or something very pleasant associated with the food um, or just a testimonial. What he did was use every form of growing media that he could to um, invent um, councils. So that was where you get like the, the, the beef council, the, the dairy association, that's all Bernays, to come at people with multiple um, prongs, if you will, to get his message across. And not always um, upfront either. It was very subversive. That really creative, almost manipulation is fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Um, and you- right. <laughs> Right. It's almost, and it's always, to me, it's interesting is even now, I think that we're more savvy consumers, that we're aware of these techniques, we still fall for them. Mm-hmm. So speaking of sort of these images and this creativity, after your historical introduction, the book is organized in photo chapters. And before we get to the specifics of those chapters, We'd love if you would tell us about your research, sort of where you were finding these cookbooks and images, how you decided what to include, and just the process of research in general. Um, As I said, I'm long fascinated with cookbooks themselves. Um, To me, they're very interesting. So, and I'm a bit of a collector. So I was always a collector of cookbooks. Um, My mother-in-law who was a wonderful housewife and the exact opposite of everything my mother was. Um, and, and in fact, Marge was the previous generation. And when she died, I helped cleaning out the house. And I found, and I knew she had these, it was a giant stairlight bin filled with these advertising cookbooks. And I was so delighted. Um, and I'd had a bunch already, but took them all home. And that actually started the core of the idea for the project when I was confronted with just how many she had collected over the years. Um, and I realized how um, influential they were to in a kind of a generation and a half of cooks and uh, consumers. 
And so that's really where it started from my mother-in-law's cookbook collection of all these advertising cookbooks. And uh, many of those actually made the the final cut of in determining how and where and and how to to go about organizing things. Um, After that, I was off to the races and I helped, you know, asked a few friends of mine who are book dealers. They, they searched out ones I'd heard about, um, that I, but I didn't have myself and found them for me. Um, and then as well, of course, is all of the reading that goes behind, um, the cookbooks themselves. Hmm. Well, the photos are exactly what the cover of the books promise or what the book promises. So brightly colored, encased in jello, studded with green olives, some really unusual combinations and elaborate arrangements. Um, and you start with jello and molded foods, the classic emblem of this kind of cookbook. Gelatin had an enormous impact on home cooking in the United States at this time. So can you describe its success and why it was so popular? Why there was so much pressure to encapsulate food and make dishes like the infamous perfection salad? Yeah, thank you. It's one of the the side note. It's funny. We when the book went to print, there was a small issue at the printer. They desperately called the publisher, wanting to you know scrap the first run because they felt that they had something had happened, um, and the color wasn't right. <laughs> we're like, no, no, no. That's how it's supposed to look. So we had to put a lot of work into recreating that like that printing of the time period. Because one thing to note is these advertising cookbooks were printed very cheaply. They were meant to, you know, maximize the content, not not the actual book itself. And so the printing technique was very interesting. That's where some of you get where you get some of the garish colors come from the printing technique of the time, not necessarily how the food itself looked. And Jello is always a fun one to dig into, because it does have a historical food related reason for encapsulating things in gelatin. Um, I also am a master food preserver for my county, so I know too much about food preservation. Um, so by encapsulating something in a gelatin, you keep the air out. And so this is an ancient practice from, you know, I mean, it goes back to the 17, 1600s. Uh, and so when there's food scarcity, anytime you can make your food last for a day or two longer, that means you're eating another day or two. Uh, and I think that's a relatively modern invention, this idea of um, where, you know, we have so much food, that abundance. It's only a few generations back that, you know, people were, were literally starving. There, of course, we have hunger issues today, but, but different than they were, say, in the 1910s and 20s. So when you took like, your leftover meats and leftover vegetables and put them into a gelatin, you kept the air out. And so without refrigeration, you were able to eat that food for another few days. So that's the origination of putting food in a gelatin. Jello um, comes from then that next step of making a gelatin from scratch it is really time consuming and difficult. You're talking about you know boiling down calves hooves and things like that. And uh, Victorian cooks did do that. Gelatin then became um, that invention of making it easier by doing that process of extracting the gel portion from the, the hooves and things like that, um, and being able to then dehydrate it into a powder and selling it to cooks. So you've got these Victorian era cooks who are you know used to making things in a, into a gel, and then the Jello product, the Knox and the Jellos, come along to make that process much easier. 
And then as you move along with cooks, they're removed from the tradition of why are they making something gelled? Why are they putting something into jello? And then it becomes just the thing itself. Um, you're just making the jello mold and putting stuff into it because that's what you do. You're told to do that. And people become disconnected from the tradition of why they're doing it. My family was definitely a jello salad family. And I'm so interested in how they might, these recipes that find in community cookbooks that are very jello centric may have come from these advertising first, right? So they kind of make their way into culture from there. Absolutely. Um, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, the food editor there, fantastic woman, uh, Nancy Stowes, who recently retired, as so many of the food editors in major papers are, um, she did a survey on family recipes with journal readers and came up with the, the fascinating statistic that only about 10% of the quote unquote, you know, grandma, great grandma's recipes were actual recipes that originated with a family or were in a different, you know, food tradition. Most of the recipes that people thought were their grandma's recipes were actually derived from advertising cookbooks. Oh, wow. That's a pretty startling statistic. <laughs> yeah, it was. And of course, you know, it's not, it's, it's not scientific in so much that, you know, sure. <laughs> it wasn't a double blind or anything like that. But um, yeah, but it was a really interesting kind of revelation of how influential these cookbooks were on American cooks. Yeah. The sections on pineapples and bananas are especially interesting as ingredients that Americans would have been interested in, but could not rely on their heritage or instincts to figure out how to cook and eat them. So how did the advertising cookbooks present these ingredients to consumers and how did the cookbooks create the demand or did they respond to an existing command? That was a tension that I thought about a lot while looking at this book. And so specifically for bananas and pineapples, um, the companies created the demand. And that's what's so very interesting because that model still works. There's advertisers still doing that who are introducing quote unquote exotic um, which, you know, that the word has racist connotations to it, but you'll, you'll hear that in food marketing. Um, and so int introducing a food from a different geographic region of the world, introducing it to consumers in a different region, and then they have to teach them how to eat it. And that's the way it was definitely with bananas. Um, if you look at the earliest iterations of the United Fruit Banana cookbooks, it actually goes through you know, how to, how to eat it in the basic of like, you have to take the peel off. Originally, when people were first introduced to it, it's hard to think now that, you know, we don't know how to peel a banana, but folks had to be told how to peel a banana. Um, and pineapple too, was, you know, it came canned for two reasons. Um, because one, the shipping of pineapple became so hard to keep it fresh from the regions it's grown in. And so the idea of canning it meant that people could consume it. Uh, when the shipping channels, you know, kind of changed in the, the modern era, era post 60s, um, and people could get fresh pineapples faster, um, there was a new round of cookbooks from Dole, one of the largest pineapple sellers, growers sellers, again, how to deal with a fresh pineapple, because people's experience of pineapple was only in a can. They didn't know how to deal with a fresh one. So those are the two instances really of um, where the marketers introduced and then taught people how to eat the food and then how to um, further eat it and use. And that's where you see some of the crazier recipes 
um, in these advertising cookbooks because the cooks and the recipe developers who a lot of them came out of the home economics schools of the 1920s and 30s were doing research on um, historic recipes and then trying to integrate that new food into it. So the most infamous example always is the ham banana rolls. People always see that picture online and go, oh my God, I can't believe people ate that. But it, it actually is tied back to a historic Panamanian dish. Yeah, the ham-wrapped bananas were definitely one of the recipes that I saw that made me giggle a little bit. And I think that the cookbooks and recipes included can really give today's readers a lot to laugh at. But in the closing pages of the book, you write more about the legacy of the United Fruit Company and American colonialism. You say, the United Fruit Company changed how we eat, how we advertise, and how we fight wars. So what is the sinister side of these images and how does food tell the story of colonialism and power? And I chose to talk about bananas so extensively because they um, exemplify all of those issues. Bananas are grown in Central and uh, the Northern South American countries. Uh, and during that time period when the growth of bananas was you know, exponential really, uh, in the United States, and that's post-1920s, from the 1920s to 1940s, uh, the first thing that United Fruit does is engage Edward Bernays again. Um, he also uses his connections, which are everywhere, not just to the psychological community via his uncle, but his friends um, were working for the U.S. government. And so he was able to leverage more than just advertising, he was able to leverage the power of the United States government to assist him and to assist United Fruit as they were growing and keeping wages low, keeping conditions poor for workers. Um, the term banana republic comes from that time period when United Fruit essentially owned like almost 90% of Honduras and 80% of Guatemala. Um, and they were putting the leaders of those countries in place. They were using the force of the United States government to their advantage, which sometimes horrifies people when we think about what we know um, what, from school, from history books about the United States. But the United States has a long history of colonial type behaviors and the bananas um, really, really show how that worked together. And so, Beyond using the advertising, so Bernays started with bananas um, and creating and paying for doctors to talk about how healthy they were. So people are being told and given um, advertisements. There would be advertisements under um, a, a shadow group that Bernays would start, and you'd see an advertisement in the Ladies Holden Journal. It doesn't say anything about United Fruit, but it's paid for by United Fruit, and it talks about how bananas, you know, you need to eat a banana a day to get your vitamins. So many kids grew up having to eat a banana, whether they liked it or not. So if you have a doctor telling you to eat a banana a day, well, that guarantees that there's a lot of bananas being sold across the United States. Well, in addition to that colonial story, you also discuss racism in food advertising in the introduction and in the photo chapter titled, That's Not Racist, That's Our Brand. Um, how are ethnic foods, quote unquote, sold to white Americans in advertising cookbooks? 
And why were caricatures such as Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben so important to the success of the products? How did these characters evolve through the years? Oh, isn't it fascinating what's happening now with yeah. uh, Aunt Jemima? And I know this speaks to your work, Carrie, a little bit about identity and about what's perceived as South. What's interesting with the Aunt Jemima story is that Pearl River Milling is a Northern company. And there was a, an odd thing that happened in American culture uh, post Civil War and during the Reconstruction era is that it became um, this time period where Americans had uh, were developing a sense of nostalgia for antebellum Southern culture or what they perceived it to be. And it was never an accurate picture. And so advertisers started using uh, many of the racist tropes that were developed in the Reconstruction era as an advertising um, mascot. And, you know, just even humans as mascots is horrifying, but that's what we did uh, because it gave a connotation of hominess, of what a perception of southernness was. And so pancakes, for example, were perceived as like a down home, you know, country southern style breakfast that anybody can have. And of course, you may not be able to afford to have a servant in your house, but, you know, it, using an Aunt Jemima or an Uncle Ben image kind of gave that um, mystique, if you will of what that lifestyle would be like. Well, I know Eliza was really interested in the advertising of Chinese foods as well. Can you talk a little bit about those images? Oh, absolutely. And if you look, you know, people can find those images online, sadly, still, but they can also find them, you know, in the book. And they're very caricatured images. And sadly, a lot of the caricatured caricatured images of the food and how it was presented, um, was as this kind of blanket orientalism, a blanket oriental. So the early advertisers and food marketers didn't even distinguish between the regionality and, and the, the distinct ethnic identities behind a Japanese cuisine, a Korean cuisine. Everything was just oriental, vaguely oriental. And so what the marketers did was Americanize it. And what that meant was essentially making it easier and instant and using um, ingredients that were sold by that either that specific company or were easily accessible in a big American supermarket. And so what you see um, in the advertising is, are two, two things. In early um, um, advertising for quote unquote oriental foods is there was a very uh, a white actress. And so it was a very, to give that imprimatur of like, you can do this. This is an acceptable thing for white suburban middle-class women to do is to make, you know, Kung, uh, Kung Pao chicken, to make um, something chop suey, which is of course an American invention. Um, and so to give it again, that aspirational uh, blessing, if you will, to give that imprimatur of okayness that you can make this kind of food. And then of course, then using just caricatures of, of Chinese style characters um, to then brand it. I think the idea of keeping up appearances, even after um, it wasn't common to keep a servant or something in the house is so interesting. And the Good Housewives chapter looks at that gendered message about weight loss and entertaining and in general, just being sort of that perfect classic housewife. Um, what were some of the ways these cookbooks reinforced gender norms? How did food processors convince buyers that store-bought was actually better than homemade? And what did this mean for homemakers? 
specifically women. What's interesting is one of the, the tools that the advertisers use to enforce um, the kind of gender norm is really playing upon the, the parenting because everybody wanted to be a good mom. And this was also tied into some of the psychological theories of the day, the, the pretty wrong ones, I'm going to say, that essentially blamed mom for everything. So if your kid was bad at school, it was mom's fault. And then early nutritional studies that talked about vitamins. Um, again, the discovery of vitamins and how to measure calories and all that stuff is a relatively new thing in the great timeline of food history. That's a, you know from the early 1900s, just broadly. And so that idea of using the science of nutrition, the psychological idea that mom is responsible for 100% of the kid's mental and physical health, which you know goes back to the Puritans of mom's responsible for their religious health. And so these were the, the, the overarching concepts that women had to deal with. And so advertisers were able to use those to enforce those normative behaviors and sell them products. And that's where you see even like the, the, the terrible breakfast cereals, which we know now an analysis are just, you know, stodge and sugar, but everything was vitamin enriched. Everything had extra vitamins. And so a woman could then go to a grocery store, buy a product and feel good about herself by providing the, the nutrition her children and family needed. And you see a lot of the early cookbooks of that time period of the advertising cookbooks talk about that, about the responsibility of being a good parent. And if you use these products, you will be a good parent. It makes a very direct line through that. While at the same time, it talks about women then um, being thin and attractive and having the house perfect. And so much of the advertising of that time period went to um, reaffirm the cultural norms that were happening of the time. And this is especially you see post-World War II, um, where it became really important, where women were discovering a new autonomy with the high percentage of men away from the home. Women were, for the first time, having jobs in factories, doing physical, real physical labor that men do, and doing it very well. Um, and so, of course, post-World War II, it became the imperative of, of the government. There are some governmental um, public relations that was happening, too, about reminding women that the higher calling to them was to be in the home. Well, we can't skip the spam and mystery meats section that comes <laughs> next. Uh, Underwood deviled ham is definitely a favorite in my house growing up. I ate a lot of deviled ham. Uh, by choice. I was never forced to eat it. I loved it. Uh, these are definitely some of the weirder combinations in the advertising book uh, cookbooks. And again, it raises the question of demand. Um, are these like pineapple and bananas products in search of a market uh, or something that people were asking for? What's interesting is if you look through, again, culinary history, the canned meats actually have um, a gourmet antecedent, if you will. And you can look at French and English cooking, uh, different potted meats, which was, you know, um, even a pate, that's essentially a, a, po a potted preserved meat. Uh, and so using that as kind of the jumping off point, a lot of these canned meats came to be, especially uh, during World War I. Um, it was critical, as always, armies traveled on stomach. So food preservation made a huge, uh, played a huge role in keeping armies fed. Um, the high salt 
content makes it tasty. We're still mammals and we respond really well to high fat and high salt content and high sugar content food. It makes us feel really good when we eat it. Not so much afterwards, but really good when we eat it. So it's no surprise that uh, like the ham salads or the deviled hams and the spams and things that had that high fat and sodium content were were really tasty. Um, And again, the war plays a role in this too, is people had a taste for it. They developed a taste for it. Um, Soldiers did. And so, you know, they wanted it again when they got home. And that's the story of spam really is once that's really developed the taste for it, people want it. And it's a matter of um, giving it to people first. And that's still why we have this long tradition of um, missing in our pandemic, but going to grocery stores and having free samples. Um, Because once we taste it, we, we like it and we want it. And that's part of introducing a product to consumers. Well, then you kind of talk about how Hawaii uh, has adopted Spam as almost like a national food. Um, And it's kind of this resurgence of very cool Spam dishes in hip restaurants now. What do you think about that? I think it's hysterical. Um, In in Hawaii, because of the uh, World War II, Hawaii became the great storehouse for the Pacific armies. And so when the war ended, they had a surplus of spam and then gave it out to people. They had so much of it, they just gave it away. And of course, again, free samples, um, people developed a taste for it. And so that's why Hawaii became um, a large consumer to this day of spam. And what's funny is what became something that was made fun of spam, as you alluded to, is coming back into vogue. And it's more of like the wink and the nod which is I find really interesting going into the future of the past few years of food is kind of an extremism. And so you see, you know, spam being used in ingredients in fancier restaurants. And it's kind of, again, kind of a, that joke, but they, people still eat it and want it to taste good. Um, and I think spam a few years ago, they did uh, just a marketing campaign, which again, playing on the kind of the wink and the nod, style that's happening currently and came they threatened to introduce pumpkin spice spam i don't know if you saw that um i don't think they explained it yeah great marketing because no one was going to actually eat that and they weren't actually going to make it but by just producing the advertising campaign it played upon a couple sarc trends and it was very kind of a strange negative advertising um because people were hating on pumpkin spice and what that meant for people and already had hated on spam. So joining two things that get made fun of all of a sudden elevated it to a different space. So I guess you could sort of say that soldiers who really became accustomed to eating these typical foods um, during World War II were sort of the first food influencers. Uh, so how did advertising cookbooks respond to these very specific times in history, maybe depression, rationing, and then in the post-war era? Um, it, with the cheap printing, they, advertisers and marketers responded really well to crises. Um, and they came up with ways to utilize their products in a cheap way and to a couple of the, the advertisers came out with rationing cookbooks during World War II. So here's how to use your ration cards. Here's a recipe, how many ration points it actually takes and how our products fit into that recipe. And so it, 
in that time period during the Depression and during World War II, it was always under the guise of being helpful because that was the, the platform for the advertising cookbooks of that time period up until, like, say, you know, the end of the 60s. It was, we're here to help you, uh, again, geared towards women. And so we're here to help you be a better mother, a better housewife. Um, and so your husband's coming home and he likes spam. Now we're going to produce this cookbook for you that shows you how to give your husband the food that he likes. Um, and that's a lot of the early spam recipes. We're very much uh, recreating that. Um, I'm looking at, you know, the um, from 1959, Armour. Armour had, um, was a, a Midwestern meat packer and did canned chili, Vienna sausages. Um, Treat was their name brand of the, their spam equivalent. And the, it's really easy. It just says so, so good, so thrifty, so versatile. And so it's kind of playing on doing the things that you want to do for your family, feeding them, and, but doing it in a way that's easy for you and still tastes good for you know, your husband. I particularly enjoyed the Food Sells Everything chapter uh, with cookbooks published by companies that didn't sell food. And you kind of started out by describing one of those. Uh, I liked the Antisocial Cookbook from Banaka Breath Spray that featured recipes to make your breath smell bad. Isn't that fantastic? Um, yeah. <laughs> what are these books like and why do they exist? <laughs> What's funny about those is those come, uh, I mentioned the Gettleman uh, Brewing one when we first started uh, speaking, and that's actually um, one of the earlier ones. And you can see a style and tone change um, when we get towards the kind of the 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 descendant of the advertising cookbooks, which is through the late 60s to 70s. Um, And what you see is, again, the almost a self-awareness. And so the antisocial cookbook, really a a brilliant marketing scheme, um, and all the recipes included in it are ones that would make your breath stink. And so, of course, then you would need to use the breath spray to help refresh your breath, which is just so, so clever. Um, But the other ones you see are uh, Marlboro cigarettes, they still on their website publish recipes. And again, they're more about lifestyle. And so the recipes are very male oriented. Um, they're very dude centric. Um, and the, the dude has been kind of a, a, a new trope kind of coming up in, yes. in food history. If you talk to El- Emily Contois, just written a really interesting book about. I interviewed her just a couple of months ago. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Emily and I chatted a few weeks ago too. Um, and so that idea of building an identity that's separate now and adver- and marketed towards men rather than women. Um, so that's something that the idea of embracing men cooking and how are they going to cook. And so um, these new kind of end of the era advertising cookbooks are uh, taking that page from what worked in the earlier generations and trying to shift a little bit their focus one on who the consumer is, men, and as well as then the wink and the nod, again, using that humor um, as the Bianca ad did. Well, the question comes up for me whenever I think about these recipes, uh, and especially some of the things that you describe as abominations uh, that they represent. I have this debate with myself. So on the one hand, they seem to come out of no particular tradition or history. Oh, but they do. Yeah, this is what I wanted you to say more about. So talk a little bit about whether or not they, how do you feel about them as cultural significance or or how they relate to authenticity? 
Um, they relate in authenticity to me is that they're wholly American. Um, and, and what I mean by that is they definitely come from a place, but in the, the great American way, we kind of, we've smoothed the edges down. And so I'll go back to the banana ham casserole. So if you think about bananas, we immediately think of sweetness. But if you are in, um, say, the Caribbean islands and think of a plantain, um, that's not as sweet. And they're used often in cooking as a savory item, as um, a starch, as one would maybe a potato or, you know, something like that. And so when you, if you think about that pork and plantain recipe, which is, you know, then it starts to shift a little bit. Um, so that's where the recipe originated uh, from the Caribbean islands of using plantains, uh, a mashed plantain with a roast pork. And that got Americanized by using bananas and a piece of ham. And so uh, the, the same way that we were talking earlier about the jello dishes, like a perf- that perfection salad, it came out of that Victorian tradition of one, using gelatin to preserve food for a little bit longer. And then also the kind of chef culture of that excessiveness of the late Victorian era to the Ed- Edwardian gilded age of showing off. I mean, the perfection salad wasn't something that you made for the kids <laughs> for lunch. That was something you made if you were having, you know, a group of ladies over for bridge or, you know, a dinner party because you were trying to impress somebody. Do the, the advertising cookbooks make those connections like between the roast pork plantain and the banana and ham? They don't. And that's yeah. the interesting thing about the advertising cookbooks. They exist for themselves. They are not trying to educate you, um, you, the consumer, on to any of the, the, the cultural history or food history. They just want you to buy the thing. And the interesting part about that is, again, how sh- culture changes and media shifts. And now for cookbook consumers, having that authenticity of origination and voice is really important. So if you see um, a theoretical banana cookbook today, it would probably not have any information about how to peel a banana, but it probably would have information about the f- people who were, you know, that were displaced, but it would be painted in a much friendlier picture of the people who were displaced um, and then more cuisine from that area. And you can see that shift happening in some of the later banana cookbooks from the 1970s um, that start trying to go towards an authenticity that try to, um, bring recipes that are, again, quote unquote, exotic, but still palatable to the American um, kind of food way. So let's shift now to the present. Um, and I'd love to talk about how food advertising has changed in this very strange era of social media. So we think we're just watching, let's say, a tasty video on how to cook something, but maybe it's trying to sell us the ingredients. And with influencers, it can be hard to tell what is an orchestrated advertisement and what is self-expression. So do you think we still trust it? Does it have a bigger impact than we think because it's not as explicit and direct as these advertising cookbooks? Isn't it funny? We still kind of question that and fall for that. And a lot of the influencer campaigns, and we can look at that and say, oh, there's a direct line from when Rosemary Clooney was, you know, shilling for Jell-O. Or, you know, we can see that that's a celebrity, you know, advertising something. But yet, as you point out, the line is blurred. 
when there isn't the explicit text um, or, you know, framing that that was paid for by X, Y, Z, because people do have preferences. We do have taste and we like sharing that. And that comes across in how that modern um, influencer campaigns work. But so it, it is more difficult to find out, is that someone genuinely, and again, in that search for authenticity and that aspirational nature. So people want to eat something that, you know, a Kardashian is eating um, because of that aspirational nature. But it's harder to discern is if that per, if that Kardashian was paid to eat that thing to tell you about it, or if they're doing it because of that authentic self. And again, that is difficult to suss out. Um, and that's where... Um, I think more and more of the advertising is going is more niche. So very targeted because of the mechanisms, it's much cheaper. You can get to small focused areas of, um, of kind of affinity groups um, at a cheaper rate than you can. Um, you could 60 years ago. So you would have to print a cookbook that would appeal to the majority of people. And now you can create little videos or an Instagram post and have that really targeted to a smaller affinity group. What would you say is the biggest lesson or takeaway from your exploration of these books? I think the biggest takeaway for me is um, as clever as we collectively, uh, as American consumers, we think we are, we still fall for marketing. And that's why there will always be a form of food advertising and one of, I mean, whether it's the tongue-in-cheek stuff we see right now, whether it's the excessive stuff, like um, I even t- I've talked about it before in, in in doing presentations, is the tasty videos, and you know where it's just excessive, where you don't, you're not really going to eat that thing, but you're watching it and you're seeing a few things, and then in our mind we're still um, we're still always assessing and changing. So you're like, well, you might not actually eat the double down, you know, the, the fried chicken with bacon in the middle, but you, but fried chicken sounds good. So you might eat a variation on that. And so in showing what the excessive nth degree of a product is, we still get the message through that there's a product there and that might taste good and we might want to eat it. So that's my biggest takeaway. So, Christina, what were some of your favorite images or discoveries when you were doing your research? What what was the wildest advertisement or recipe that you came across? And which of these pieces seem to be making the most interesting contributions to this sort of discussion that you're having within the book? Um, I have a few that stood out for me personally. Um, and again, things resonate with different people different way. Um, growing up, there was a neighbor who always made, they had 10 kids and they would always make a peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches. And to me, that was just, even as a kid, that was the most repulsive thing ever. And I always thought, how could anyone come up with the combination of peanut butter and mayonnaise? And in the research, I found out why. Um, there was a time with the food conglomerates that the Skippy company was owned um, by the same as the as craft company, and so they advertised uh, making sandwiches with peanut butter and and Miracle Whip, I think it was. Um, and I'm like, ah, that's where that came from. And so that to me was a personal revelation. Um, and one of the more horrifying ones to me is I think I mentioned I, I I'm a canner, I'm the master food preserver for my county, and there was that cookbook 
Um, and it comes under some of the gender stuff. Uh, it was so blatant uh, for ball canning. And it was talking about uh, the single woman. And if she would start canning, that she'd be loved and admired. Um, and it was just really, to me, seeing that was like, oh, oh, that is so wrong. It's so bad. Um, but yet that was my was. favorite, too. That was my favorite. <laughs> it, I mean, and I can't imagine, I, I guess I should, maybe that's a follow-up I should do with just the Jarden brands with the companies. I wonder if they have any research of if that was effective. That's sometimes my curiosity um, about some of these advertisements. Were they effective? We can see some of the recipes that didn't stand the test of time, you know, that again goes ham and bananas. But there are some recipes that people love and that originated from these cookbooks. And so, you know, there was some success with these. Well, maybe this this could be a series of books and that could be your sequel. Um, <laughs> have you have you tried to make any of the specific dishes that you researched? I know you mentioned being into preservation and canning. But. Um, I, I haven't made a lot of them. Um, because I, as I say, I kind of grew up that way. So I'm like, oh no, no, no. I don't want to go back to that dark place. <laughs> but there are some that my husband who also grew up with those recipes has a fondness for. So sometimes we'll, there's a casserole usually a few times a year that requires a can of soup. Yeah. I think your book has helped me think about how, why my family cooks so many things with green olives. Uh, <laughs> we make nachos, but we put green olives on our nachos and uh, I, I just I eat green olives more than I think normal people should. <laughs> and I wonder if somewhere in my history is an olive marketing cookbook. <laughs> you know, they were out there. They were out there. So I'm sure that was part of the challenge is that we came up with, you know, in, in publishing, you know, you have to kind of build a scope of what a book is going to be, not just content wise, but the, the practicum. And so how many pages? And that was one of the hardest things was to really cut down because there were so many great images to use. And so I really had to work to cut down the images that I thought reflected the story itself and, and help illustrate what I was trying to get across. But there's just so many more images that are both hysterically funny and horrifying at the same time. Yeah. Well, what other projects are you working on next? Um, again, I do love cookbooks and I love the intersection of how we cook and cookbooks and how they tell a, a story of American history and how that influence. And so my newest project is, it, it has a title already um, called Holy Food um, Recipes and Foodways from Cults, Communes, and New Religious Movements. And, and so that's, it's an interesting to me. And again, I, I'm, I always work on that, that small bit of arrogance is that of, if it's interesting to me, I hope I can make it interesting for other people is there was a confluence of religion um, and, of course, in the United States with new religions. We were, you know, the home of religious exiles from our founding. And how those groups and those offshoots and sects and really took um, inspiration from different types of religion to influence how they were going to eat. And then how, conversely, that influenced American food in general. Um, Think about little, I always like to talk about Little Debbie's snack cakes. Those were actually founded by the Seventh-day Adventists. And um, the, for a lot of kids in the 70s and 80s, it was 
um, their introduction to carob and the sadness of of not chocolate. Wow, I did not know that. I'm excited for you to finish that project and come back to talk to us about it. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, today we've been talking to Christina Ward about her newest book, American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jell-O, published in 2019 by Process Media. Thank you so much for being with us, Christina. Oh, thank you for having me. I love talking about food and I love talking about the intersection of advertising and American history. Well, I love talking about cookbooks, so... (laughs) Thank you all for listening.